So this week we are in chapter 7, looking at the the topic of the church, uh, specifically the local church. So uh, we're on page 70. And really the main idea is we're pushing through this material. One of the things... Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. um, I should have passed that out. So page 70, which you guys don't have. Oh, okay. <laughs> so I just printed these ones up. So we were looking at page uh, page 70 uh, in your notes. Um, and really the main idea that we're, we're really going to be seeing and kind of pushing as we go through this topic is that, you know, the idea of the local church, especially in today, in the culture we live in today, uh, and maybe some of you guys have experienced, uh, talk to people, you know, I know I've talked to people about this topic, is um, the local church really is not optional. We need to be there. We need the church, and the church needs us. So it's a reciprocal kind of relationship. You know, it's not just that we actually need it, but God has made it that the church actually needs us as well. Uh, and that's what this first part, this first kind of introduction is talking about. Many individuals and families seem determined to function as Christian lone rangers. So maybe you've, you've known people like that. Uh, choosing it to go it alone uh, rather than becoming intimately involved with the community of believer, believers. So sadly, they are forsaking scriptures, plan in favor of their own, for the Bible allows you and commands you to be actively involved in a local body of believers. So, this uh, under, so we want first topic we're going to look at is understanding the local church. So this this introduction, um, it's it's something that uh, some of the stuff in here is okay, some of this stuff, and I'll kind of explain. So there, some of you guys may have heard this this idea. The Greek word for the church for church is ekklesia. So some of you may have heard that phrase before, that term, that Greek word. Ecclesia is a combination of ek, out, and kaleo, which is called. So it's this idea of called out. So they try to push this ideal here, and this is what this introduction is talking about, is Christians are those people who are called out from the world. And they're getting this from this word, uh, ecclesia, uh, from the Greek, to call out. Now, now, as I say that, it's actually not really the case. So it's, material says this, but it's one of those things, it's kind of a, it's actually a, um, a fallacy, an exegetical fallacy. So you're not actually, Christian, ecclesia really doesn't, although it does mean that, by the first century, in the first century, when the New Testament is being written, they weren't using it as in the sense of a people called out from something. It was just simply meant the word, it was a word for commun- uh, congregation, an assembly, or a church. So it, it didn't have that meaning anymore by the first century. So it's a similar... So the truth itself that Christians are people called out of the world is not... Is, it's true, but it's not derived from the word ecclesia, uh, if that makes sense. So the truth is derived from First Peter 2.9. It talks about how Christians are uh, alien or aliens and foreigners. So we are called out. It is true that we are foreigners... But it's not coming from this world. And it's the same idea, uh, for instance, pineapple. So if you were to look at the word pineapple and say, break it down, pine, 
and then apple. You wouldn't get, you wouldn't understand anything about a pineapple by trying to break the word down. The same thing with butterfly. You wouldn't understand anything about a butterfly by breaking the word down to from butter and fly. You would not, it would not help you to understand. And that's, that's the same idea with ecclesia. It doesn't, that breaking the word down in this case doesn't help us to understand what really ecclesia means. And so this first paragraph we just, we need to rework uh, and think clearly about. Uh, other than that, though, the rest of the lesson is excellent. So just put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it, the reason I point that out is it's, you hear that quite a bit. It's one of those things that's been put out there. You'll hear it from time to time, even from certain times. You won't hear that from Pastor Ken uh, because Dr. Combs is, was his Greek teacher, and I know Dr. Combs covers this material. So it's, But you'll hear it once in a while, and you need to remember that... Ecclesia simply was dealt with a congregation or an assembly of people. So the Bible uses the term ecclesia in two basic ways. How the Bible uses it in the New Testament. One, it's the universal church. So all true believers from Pentecost until the rapture are, are part of the universal church. So it says it's not limited to a particular denomination. Indeed, indeed, Scripture teaches that there's only one universal or uh, invisible church from Ephesians 4. So based on that definition, uh, all born again, that's in the blank there, all born again or regenerate people are part of the universal church, born again believers. So the first mention of ecclesia in the Bible is Matthew 16, 18. And it refers specifically to the universal church. So Matthew 6, 18, 16, 18 says, and I'm sure most of you heard this verse, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So that's the ecclesia, he's, he's using that there. Christ is using that word there. So was the church past, present, or future from the moment when Christ made this statement? So when Christ says this thing to Peter, when is the church? Uh, is, has the church is the church already established? Is it something that was established before the statement? Is it still, still in the future? If you so, all right. So it, it's it's the future, but we're we're basing that because it's Pentecost. So the indwelling, the spirit baptism of believers, which occurs from at Pentecost. It's the birth of the church. So everybody who's been uh, uh, has that spirit baptism. So this, the the church is a future thing when Christ says this to Peter. What did Christ promise to do? And he, he promised to he promised to establish his church. So he's establishing the church. The church's owner is of course Christ, and he's the builder. So. Since Christ alone can build his church, how should that affect the way we minister to people? How, how does that affect how we conduct worship uh, services or tell people about the gospel? If Christ built, has, is building his church and he's the one responsible for it, how does that truth influence us? How should it influence us as we minister to one another, share the gospel, that kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. But okay, so how do you connect that back to 
if it, no, you're right. Mm-hmm. But we're saying so. How do we the, because? And I think you can prove that truth because if if we're followers of Christ, then and we're truly following Him, then the, the, that that follows, mm-hmm. right? So you have to, so that's what I was trying to basically argue is that if Christ is building His church, we have to do it the way He desires. We don't have any say over how it should be done. We're just doing what He wants. I mean, the exact style, that kind of thing is up to, it's up for grabs as long as you do it in a way that's honoring to him. But we have to do it the way he desires. The, the specifics of the church, the, the important details of the church, we have to do uh, how Christ has uh, laid out. We have to do it faithfully, doing it in a way that honors him. So point two, each local church then is part of the universal body. So we have this universal church, which is... Uh, Go transcends time, location. It's all believers from Pentecost to the Rapture. The Rapture is still into the future, and then. But we also have local church, which deals is a uh, deals with believers in a specific geographical location. So that's really the the key point: specific geographical location around the globe. So it's also called the visible church. So most references to ecclesia in the New Testament refer to the local church. Acts 14.23 refers to the establishment of leaders in each church. Uh, is that a reference to the universal or local church? So that's uh, individual or local churches there. And then these references here are all specific references to different churches. So Acts 13 refers to the church of Antioch. Romans 16 refers to the church at Sencria, which is C-E-N-C-H-R-A-E, or excuse me, E-A. 1 Corinthians 1 is, refers, obviously, that Paul refers to the church at Corinth. And Revelations 3, he talks about the church of Laodicea. This is John writing his revelation. And then we have this, the author's comparison with, with McDonald's. So the idea here, what the, um, the way he's trying to compare it to McDonald's is basically that like McDonald's is a corporation. And if you know about how they build their business model, each individual McDonald's is owned by a, owned by a specific, you know, a person or a corporate, a separate corporation or something. So in the same way that they're owned, they have this kind of, uh, association with the larger McDonald's corporation, but each one is individually owned and operated. It's kind of like what we're talking about. I mean, it's it's a bit of a stretch, but it, it helps you to at least wrap your mind around what we're talking about. Rather than simply describing the church, the New Testament offers at least nine different pictures. So that's really important there. They're pictures of the church. Each communicates important information regarding the church. So we Taken together, these nine things give us a fuller picture. So they're not, we don't look at each one and say, uh, put a lot of uh, stress on each individual one. It's to be taken together. So the first one, the church is Christ's body. And so we will hear this the most. Romans 12, and then we have these different, uh, different references. Romans talks about each member having different functions. What do we learn from? from the fact that the human body there in the quote or uh, in the line, the space there provided. 
is that each member has different functions. Each each uh, member has different roles to perform. First Corinthians twelve, we each have different roles to perform. So that's what those all of those references talk about. That we're each members of the church. We each have different things. Just like the body has different members. Uh, that is your hands, your feet, your arms, your eyes. In the same way, the body is composed of different parts that each have a different role to play. And then in answering this question, what lesson does that teach us concerning the church is that we're tied together. We're, we have this, uh, we're intrinsically tied together. In Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, uh, as it says, it's a little bit more difficult to understand. It teaches that every supporting ligament contributes to the unity of the body, and it teaches that every member of the local church should be involved in ministry. So here's this is the the money quote for this section here, upcoming this next couple sentences. Ministry is not the job of the pastor or of a select few. Rather, it is the responsibility of the entire body. The church honors the Lord through every member of ministry. The result is a healthy and growing body. So you may have heard that even here. Every member ministry. You know, um, I think community does a great job from the churches that I've been a part of. Community probably is one of the best I've seen with my own eyes that, that really helps people to get out and get involved. And a lot of churches, it's just the staff. It's the pastor's you know, deacons, these are the ones doing a lot of serving. You know, maybe you have certain roles, but here at Community, you know, there's really an expectation right from the beginning that ministry, it, you got, we are the ones actually needing to all be involved with ministry. It's not just uh, like Pastor Ken or Pastor Larry. So, that then the wrap-up for this section, a Christian without a local church is like a hand without a body. You need the local church. Again, to stress, you need the local church. Uh, number two, the church is Christ's family. So church is Christ's body. Now it's the church is Christ's family. A second major picture of the church highlights the intimacy that every believer has with God and with other believers. What lessons do we learn about the church from the following? So 1 John 3 and John 1. So John is helping us to see that we should be called. He's saying there in 1 John 3 that we should be called the children of God and that is what we are. So our relationship to God is that we are his children. So we're part. We're an intimate part of the immediate family of God. Galatians 3 calls us the sons of God, the children of God through Jesus Christ. Again, this reference of, you know, intimate family. Galatians 4 talks about that we have the rights of sonship. So if we remember the, that Near Eastern context, the son has a prominent role in the family, the eldest son, privileges, responsibilities, and those that's what we're dealing with here. When we talk about the rights of sonship, we have certain responsibilities, certain privileges that the right does not extend to other people. 1 John 3, 1 then. The Apostle John is astounded that God would grant us the privilege of being the sons of God. Yes, we are the creatures of a powerful God. Yes, we are the servants of a great master. Yes, we are the subjects of a majestic king. But we are much, much more. We are the children of a loving father. So what influence should being the children of God and the hope we have of an eternal inheritance in heaven have upon the way we live? 
So what do you think that should... How does it being called the children of God, how does that influence how we live or how we should live or how we should direct our lives? In your own families, uh, I know, you know, my mom used to hit us with this all the time, you know, like you're... You know, you have to act... There's a certain expectation as you act... You know, you... Why is there a certain expectation? Because what do you what what happens when you go out in the world? If you're, you know, you, you're representing your family, right? So if you go out and you act like you know an idiot out in public, people say, "Oh man, this kid, what is wrong with this kid's parents?" Didn't they? You know, you ever been in the store and there's the kid running around grabbing stuff, pulling stuff down, acting like an animal? And it's probably my son. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, but, you know, that, that reflects poorly on the family. You know, you, even as you get older, you know, you think, I want to I represent my family in a way that is, uh, honors my parents. You know, they've done a lot for me. And that's, that's what we're getting at here. Being the children of God means that we have to be, we want to be like our Father. We want to be like Christ. We want to live worthy of Him. We want to be pure because of our association. So living worthy of the family of God. So what are some of the significant privileges and responsibilities that come with being part of the family? We have to do what's best for the family, right? We we self-sacrifice. We no longer see what we desire as being the the most important thing. When you're just out there, you know, this this fact was really hit home for me when I was overseas in the Middle East because there's still a a really big uh, emphasis on family. So people... Um, one of the little things was that people don't uh, have this desire to like move out on their own. You know, like here, we, we actually are training our kids from an early age that at some point, you know, you're getting the boot and you're out on your own. At least, maybe not so much in church culture, but in the larger culture, we're thinking, you know, you guys need to be ready to stand on your own two feet because we're not always going to be here to take care of you. In in a Middle Eastern culture, whether it's Arab or Jew, the idea is that you are part of this family. And you never, you never like, you never think that at some point I'm going to be out on my own. It's you're going to live geographically close. You're going to be seeing these people every, you know, on a regular basis. You know, cousins, aunts, uncles, they're coming together on a regular basis every week. They hang out. Your best friends are your cousins. You know, these kind of thing. You're close with your whole family. So you see yourself as you don't do things that because you you see yourself as this larger family. You know, you're not just thinking about, I need to do what's best for me, even if it hurts my family. And that's what we're talking about here. Privileges, responsibilities. We self-sacrifice. We have, we want to do what's best for our family. How might we minister to others in a family-like manner? How, how do you think that that should play out in a family? How do we minister to one another? How does, how do you minister to each other in a family setting? What do you do? How does a family do that? If you think about different roles in a family, in the immediate family. I think one could be like being the provider of the family. Yeah. Or, you know, different characteristics you take on. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So you're providing for your family because the family is depending on you, right? Right. So that's a good one. What's a diff- what's another example or what uh, something else maybe? Just helping each other out. Yeah. Things come up. Like, yeah. 
getting a cup of cold water, yeah. setting the table, or yeah, absolutely. putting the laundry in the dryer, yeah. taking it up the stairs to your bedroom. Yeah. So all of that thing, helping, uh, encouraging, that's a big way that a lot of times, um, you know, it's one of those, encouragement is one of those things that it seems insignificant or seems small but can make a big deal. And it's something that we all can do for each other. You know, your kids, as a child, can encourage your parents. Your parents have that responsibility. They should be encouraging you. In an ideal situation, your parents are encouraging you, helping you to, you know, accomplish the things that you need to accomplish. You're mentoring each other. So the parents are kind of mentoring, you know, a father ideally, now this is ideally, a father setting an example for his kids on what an ideal man should be. So whether even if you have all girls at home, the girls are getting an idea, well, this is what an ideal man is looks like, and this is what I want for my husband. Or, you know, if same thing with the mother. You know, the, the if you have all boys at home, it's vice versa. The boys are seeing this is what the ideal woman, you know, who cares for her family, you know, is, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So re- love, respecting each other, forgiving each other. That's a big one that I think, you know, in a, in a household, we have to be willing to forgive each other because no one, no one knows how to get under your skin like your family, right? So if you have, uh, those of you who have uh, come from a large family can speak to that. So why will a, a, a genuine family spirit attract unbelievers to Christ? That's because we are created for fellowship. So right from Genesis, we see that God put this uh, uh, in Adam, that he was created for fellowship. So we're, we're created with this desire, with this longing for fellowship. And one of the things God has done providentially in, is that he's provided for us that fellowship in the local church. So we are able to get that sense of belonging, that sense of fellowship that, that the world can't get, even from their own family. Because you know, we were talking about this in my community group uh, last Sunday. And for if you talk to somebody who's been in the church for a long time, if you even just go talk to some of the people in our church, if Denny was here, he was one of the people he could attest to this. Uh, a lot of times, in the local church will actually become closer to you than some of your extended family. The people in the local church, because they're they they they're showing love in a way that they don't have to. Your family sometimes has to love you, and you know, yeah, we have to put up with you. But people in the church will love you and respect you, and they don't have to do it, but they're doing it because of uh, of who they are, this identity identity they have in Christ. So this sense of belonging and fellowship that the world can't get and can't find, and the world can't offer the people is there in the church. So this is what can attract unbelievers to Christ when they see that actually being lived out. So then we have this uh, issue about the family. We'll we'll kind of skip that for time. But the, the quote, the block quote there, a Christian without a local church is like an orphan without a family. You need the local church. So that point number three, the picture number three, is that the church is Christ's flock. Probably shouldn't put this on the thing, but I'll tell you. Uh, Tim was telling me a story about Pastor Ken, so he's going to kill me if he listens to this. He was doing. He was trying to say to this youth group uh, many years ago what a church, what a pastor does. So Ken's telling them, you know, 
we're like a pack. We, you know, the sheep. We're like the, the shepherd for the, the local the sheep. You know, and so the kids start. One kid starts going bah, <laughs> and everyone starts laughing. So then the whole room of kids start going bah bah. You know, because they're all the sheep. So, he, and then it just broke down after that. So I just thought that was funny, it was just because he was just telling me the story. So the idea of Christ's flock. So where is she? You know, for kids, it, it's kind of funny. But um, Christ is our shepherd. He's our good, the good shepherd. And even this image, we, you know, we, as we struggle now to understand, you know, we're we're pretty far removed. Most of us are pretty far removed from a farm culture. So a lot of us have never even seen. You know, sheep up close. You know, what what does it mean to be a shepherd? Because I, you know, I, what is that? You know, so you have to kind of unpack this. That's a side note. Christ often refers to his followers as sheep, and he specifically calls the church his flock. In Acts twenty twenty eight to thirty one, Paul addresses the elders of the church of Ephesus as shepherds, and I'll read that for you. So Paul is telling these elders of the church of Ephesus, this church of Ephesus that he was over there, he was with these people for three years This at this church, helping grow this church. He had planted this church. He had cared deeply for it. Now he's getting ready to leave after three years, and he's charging the elders, the pastors of this church. He says, keep watch, starting at verse 28, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own members, excuse me, own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So who gave the shepherds their position of leadership? It says that the Holy Spirit, God, Holy Spirit. The false teachers are compared to wolves. And the image of wolves, it's, 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 only, it's meant here specifically to, to really warn the danger. Because if you understand what's going on with a flock of sheep, their number one enemy is a wolf. And so he's trying to you know, push this analogy. You guys are the sheep. Your number one enemy are these wolves who are going to come in and try to destroy the flock. So he's trying to show them by, by calling them wolves, he's trying to really point out these people are seriously dangerous to you. From where did the false teacher arise? He actually says from among themselves, from people inside your own number. Why is the church in need of continual warning? It's because of the constant continual danger. So Paul's saying, immediately after I leave, there's going to be these people that are going to come up and start causing problems. You have to be on guard because not only are they going to cause problems that right after you leave, they're going to keep causing you problems continually. There's this continual danger that they need to be uh, on on guard against. So the Ephesian elders are told to be shepherds in verse 28. And that's where we get the word pastor from. The specific ministries, what specific ministries does a pastor provide for a local church that a shepherd provides for his sheep? In John 10... It tells us that the shepherd lays down his life for the flock. So he defends the flock. He's willing to guard the, the, the integrity of the flock, the lives of the sheep with his own life. So a Christian without a local church is like a sheep without a flock or shepherd. 
You need the local church. Picture number four, the church is Christ's building. So the image communicated communicates several more unique aspects of the church. Just as Matthew 16 refers to the universal church as being built by Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says that the local church at Corinth, that they are collectively, they collectively are Christ's building. This picture especially highlights the church's owner and its progress. That is, it's still under construction. So the role the spiritual leaders play that are the people like the pastor that they are engaged in helping to lay the foundation. In addition to being its owner and builder, Christ is the church's cornerstone and foundation. So what does the foundation do for the building that Christ does for his church? Just like any foundation, it gives strength, support. A good foundation helps you to see the direction you're going provides that outline, that basis for where you're headed. What role did the apostles and the prophets and the scripture that they pen play? So Christ is that immediate uh, cornerstone, you know, that, that first stone laid. I, the idea of the cornerstone is that first stone laid in a structure, the ancient Near Eastern culture, you know, where everything is built from stone. You have the cornerstone being laid first. And then that initial foundation on top of the cornerstone are the apostles and prophets. So they are the foundation. And so this is so this this lesson asks a couple questions, and, and this is we're not going to answer it in class, but we you want to be thinking about it. So First Peter two compares you to a stone, as that is a brick that's part of the building. What specific ministries can you carry out to contribute to the building up of Christ's church? This is one of those questions you want to be thinking about. What specific ministries here at Community Bible Church? Not in general, not kind of pine sky. What specific ministries here at CBC can you carry out to contribute to the building of Christ's church? If you're part of, if what Peter is saying is true and that you are a stone in the building, then there you have a part to play. What is it? So you th- this is one of those questions just to think about. So a Christian without a local church is like a brick without a building. You need the local church. The fifth picture, the Christ is the church is Christ's bride. The bride. Throughout the New Testament, God compares the relationship between himself and his church to that of a husband and wife. This picture especially highlights the intimacy between Christ and his church. Ephesians 5, 23 through 33, and that's a long time, we won't read it, but it says much about the human marriage relationship. Husbands love your wives, that kind of thing. Yet it also addresses the relationship between Christ and the church. Read it, which we won't, I'll go ahead and give you the answers here. Uh, Verse 23 says that Christ is the head and savior of the body. The head and savior of the body. How then should you, as part of the church, respond to Christ? If Christ is the head, how do we respond? Submission. Submission. That's it. Submission. We submit. If Christ is our head, then we have no other choice. We we submit. 
So according to verse 25, Christ demonstrated his love for the church by giving himself for it. It says that Christ gave himself for the church. Top of 75, Christ is the initiator of the relationship. Jesus Christ is the initiator of this relationship. It's not something we do. We don't seek out God because we, we want more, we want to know God, or we don't seek out God because we feel like we need relationship. God seeks us out because we're actually running from it. Christ continues to show his love for you by making you holy and cleaning you, as it says in verse 20, cleansing you, verse 26. What does he use to accomplish that? It says that the water through the word, the Bible, the water through the word, how then can you contribute to the process of your personal cleansing from from sin? So if, the, if God is using the word, then we have to actually be in it. We actually have to spend some time reading it. Spending some time meditating on what it says. Verse 29 uses, uh, talks about that Christ feeds and cares for the church. He feeds and cares for it. He feeds it through his word. He cares for it. So one more thought concerning your marriage relationship to Christ. James 4.4 refers to those who have a relationship with the world as adulterous people. Why, why is that? It's because we're pledged to Christ. We're, we're committed to Christ in a bond. We have that sealing of the Holy Spirit. We're committed to Jesus Christ in, in a covenantal relationship. So just like in a marriage, a marriage relationship is a covenant between two people. And so when one person breaks that covenant... They've, they're in a, they've engaged in an adulterous relationship. It's the same thing. We've committed to Christ in a covenant bond with Him. And then this question, which you, another one, one of those questions to think about outside of class. Are there instances in which you're committing spiritual adultery? Are there parts of your life that aren't being submitted, you're not submitting? Remember, as Bill said, if, if Christ is the head and we're supposed to submit, are there areas of your life that you're not submitting to Christ? Or we're committing spiritual adultery. So that's one of those things to think about. Picture number six. The church is Christ's army. This picture is strikingly different from the last. In describing us as an army, Scripture highlights the church's militancy and ministry. The church is no monastery. We do not hide out from the world. Monastery, you know, you're kind of isolating yourself, off by yourself. Rather, we battle it actively pursuing souls for Christ. What do the following verses teach us about the church's nature? I kind of don't like that. The church's militant nature. 1 Timothy 1.18 says, We are engaged in spiritual battle. It talks about that, that all believers are engaged in a spiritual battle. So just like any battle, there's rules that you need to follow. There's expectations of the soldiers. And we need to be thinking about that. 2 Timothy 2, 3-4. Since we're serving in this army, since we're serving in Christ, in this force, we need to have focus and commitment. Just like soldiers on the battlefield, you can't be thinking about what's going on back home. If you ever talk to people who, have, who are in that situation... You know, they'll say, you know, they have to put their family outside of their mind at that time, you know, because they need that focus and commitment to what they're doing.
And so this, that's what this little box talks about here. Skipping ahead to that, Ephesians 6, uh, 11 through 18 describes the sp- Christian spiritual armor. So some of you, it'd be a good one to read. As he talks about, it, it's a longer, it's a longer section, but it's, it's a good one to read. Uh, and the church, no, picture number seven, the church is Christ's field. The field. Uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6 through 9. This passage compares the body of Christ to a cultivated field. This picture highlights the church's dependence on God. It also describes the necessity of his labor. So consider consider the work of a farmer. He's required to labor intently in his field. He must be diligent and see to it that the field is properly watered and cared for. The farmer must also be dependent. That is, he he can work as hard as he can. He can do as much as he can to bring about the growth. But ultimately, he's dependent on God. So just like if you've ever known anybody, uh, you know, if you ever have known anybody in farming, you know, you do everything you can, but ultimately you're depending on the rain, the weather to do what, you know, you need. And in the same way, we are dependent on God. So the implication that Paul makes about the joint effort between the church and God that is us and God in verses 7 through 9, is that we're co-workers employed by God, that we're co-workers, we're working, co-laborers being employed by God to accomplish his purposes. The eighth picture, the church is Christ's pillar and foundation of the truth. So this is an important one. It's a short coverage here, but it's really important. First Timothy 3.15 describes each local church in a unique fashion. That is, it calls it the pillar and foundation of the truth. A pillar describes support for a building. It holds it up. Similarly, the church ought to defend and declare God's truth, the Bible. That is, we're, we're, a, we're to, a bulwark. We're to uphold the truth you know, in a corrupt culture. It's one of the roles that we have to play. And the, the last picture, that church is Christ's nation. Another interesting picture of the church is as a nation, led by Christ and peopled by believers. Ephesians 2.19 teaches that although you are no longer foreigners, that you're no longer strangers, foreigners and strangers, we actually are fellow citizens. Citizens of a new nation, of a new country. Colossians 1.13 gives us a more detailed description. You have changed kingdoms. We were previously in the dominion of darkness, the kingdom of darkness. Now, we're in the kingdom of his son. We're in the the kingdom of Christ. First Peter 2, 9 uh, through 12 makes a similar statement, and I'll read that one. First Peter 2, starting at verse 9, says, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So according to these verses, 
How should our change of citizenship affect the way we live, at work, at home? That it actually should affect all, all aspects of our life. All, all aspects of the reality we live in because of where we're at now. It should touch all aspects of our life. One other thing, so as we talked about, these are nine, nine pictures of the church. Now here's a good quote to remember with these pictures. The wide range, this is Wayne Grudem, if you ever, he's a good, he's a theologian, so if you've heard of him, but he has this quote talking about these different pictures. So the wide range of metaphors used for the church in the New Testament should remind us not to focus exclusively on any one. An undue emphasis on one metaphor to the exclusion of others will likely result in an unbalanced perspective on the church. So a balanced approach, a balanced uh, understanding of what the church is. God uses all these pictures to help us have a better picture of the whole. So we don't want to just look at one in isolation. And it talks about Acts 2.42 here to discover what the church does. This is actually really one of the key, I think one of the key verses to understanding what we're to be doing. What is the church about? Acts 2.42. So it's a good one to, to kind of lock in on and remind and, uh, you know, memorize and just uh, kind of mull over. Acts 2.42 says, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. So these these uh, couple of things devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. These four things what is what the church should be doing. It's what the apostles did in the early church and it's what we should be thinking about with our own. So if, number one, the apostles' teaching. The apostle teaching. This is the study and proclamation of the word of God. So it says, how do we continue in that today? So that's that's what we do in church every Sunday. We sit through the sermon. We sit in Ken's sermon. We hear the word preached to us. We're called to respond to it in that sermon, but we also do things like this, where we look at uh, and we study God's word. So in the church, we continue that that proclamation of, of the word of God. And it says, notice the Bible, biblical teaching comes first, even before the other aspects of worship. Scripture is central and in God's design for the church. Number two, the second thing mentioned in Acts is fellowship. And this is that Greek word koinonia. So Ken's mentioned this, Pastor Ken's mentioned this, you probably, you may have heard that phrase, koinonia, fellowship. And then it gives these couple verses to give a better idea what koinonia, how fellowship looks. Romans 15, 26 deals with sacrificial giving. This is when the churches in Macedonia and Achaia made a contribution to the churches or the saints in Jerusalem. So sacrificial giving in Romans 15. Philippians 1 talks about the Philippians' partnership with Paul and the gospel, the partnership of the gospel. And then Philippians 3 talks about sharing in Christ's suffering, the fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering. That's one of those ones that you know, it's, it's a little bit tougher. So we actually called to fellow, to be in fellowship of sharing in Christ's suffering. The third thing mentioned in Acts 2 is the breaking of bread. And this is the Lord's Supper, which we already talked about before. And then the last was prayer. 
which we talked about last week. So those four things, you know, the study of God's word, the proclamation of God's word, fellowship with the saints, the observing of ordinances and prayer. So those are the central uh, key points of the of what we do at church. Notice that the focus of all of these activities is either God or his people. What is striking in its absence is evangelism. How interesting this is considering that the fact that many modern churches are going to great extremes to make the unchurched feel at home in their worship services. Unfortunately, their efforts are spiritually ineffective and biblically indefensible. So that's a strong statement. Spiritually ineffective and biblically indefensible. So worship services are for worship, not for evangelism. So they're they're geared for believers. The worship service is geared for people who actually are believers. Now, that's not to say that you should not make it welcoming to unbelievers, but the, the service itself is always aimed at believers, God's people. So, appreciating the local church. As you can tell, Scripture has much to say about the local church. The lack of emphasis placed on local church ministry today is in stark contrast to the great emphasis the church receives in Scripture. So the reasons why we should value the local church, some of the reasons. If we read the New Testament, that the local church is central to the New Testament. The book of Acts tells us the founding and activity of the first generation of local churches. As we follow Paul and Peter, as they're establishing these things, you know, especially Paul and his missionary journeys, everywhere he's going, he's establishing churches. We talked about the church in Ephesus. You know, there's... The church refers, we have all the epistles, point two, ball point two, much of the New Testament is written to specific local churches. So all of those places that are, are, that are named after the, our books are named after, after, were actual churches. Even first and, I guess you could even argue first and second Timothy, as it says in the next point, he's writing to Timothy who's getting ready to pastor the church of Ephesus. So several books were written to the leaders of specific local churches, as he said. Timothy, Titus, 3 John. Several of the books already mentioned focus on the church as their main topic, especially Ephesians, Colossians, and Paul's letter to Timothy. So, so much of the New Testament is focused in on the local church. The local church is central to God's plan for his work. Matthew 16, 18, which we talked about to start out. The local church is key to to Christ's great command in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Although the first emphasis of the Great Commission is evangelism, the second is intense edification, which requires the local church. The specific command that Christ gives in Matthew 28 is teaching them to obey everything I have commanded. So he says... Teach them to obey everything I've commanded. So why do we need the local church to teach them? It's because the local church is the is the context. It's where the, God, the things are taught. As we just covered in Acts 2.42, the apostles' teaching was being done in the church. So the principle then is that the local church is God's tool for working in that little box. The local church is God's tool for working in the present age. So that's a, that's a really important point. 
you know, it's the it's where how God is working in the present age. If God is if that's true, then the church is not optional because that's how God's working. We can't we want to be part of that. Submitting to the local church. Scripture clearly commands every believer to submit to the local church. Unfortunately, many believers have fallen into one or two ditches. So basically, do you reject the biblical authority about what it says, what the Bible teaches about the local church? That's one end, complete rejection. Or the other end is that the other ditch is that you follow blindly this idea of biblical submission. Both extremes are dangerous. Is it often the case the truth, truth lies in this, the middle? So let's look at these uh, these scriptures, and we're gonna we'll cover this first. We'll cover. We'll wrap up with this section here. So just to cover it quickly, God has instituted the local church. During God's dealing with humanity, He has established three institutions that He intends to minister to men on His behalf. So three institutions that in this age God is using to minister to men. God ordained the first human institution shortly after creation, that is, family. Scripture records God's institution of family in Genesis 2. The second human institution established by God was government, Genesis 9. The final human institution established by God is the local church. So how does God command children to relate to their parents? This is how does God uh, command children in the context, context of the local family from Ephesians 6 is that we're at a Obey our parents in the Lord. How does God command you to relate to the government? The second institution in Romans 13 is that we're to be subject to the government, governing authorities which God established. We're to be subject to them. So how does God command you to relate to the church? He says in Hebrews 13, 7, remember... Favorably, favorably, consider the outcome of the way of life. We're to imitate those our leaders. Submit to our leaders. Imitate them. Remember their picture of remember them as a picture of discipleship. It is worth noting that one of the first steps to submitting to the leadership of the local church is becoming an active member. Membership is an expression of like-mindedness and support, but also of submission to your God-ordained authority. So that's really an important point. You know, we think, a lot of times we think, you know, I don't, how can I submit to this guy? I don't really like this person or, you know, I, I don't feel that I, I'd submit to him. But, you know, you're putting this person, your submission should not be so much to the idea to this person. Our submission needs to be because God expects it and we want to be obedient to God that we submit. If that's the reason, then it becomes possible. If we're just submitting because, you know, I don't know, I guess this guy's the pastor, so I have to listen to him. But if we're actually doing it because as an act of worship to God, then uh, that makes it possible. God has ordained spiritual leadership within the local church. So God has ordained, you know, the system that we have. He has established a system of human leadership within the local church. A thorough treatment of church government is not possible. However, the following te- text gives some basic instruction regarding leadership in the church. I'll quickly go through these. Servant leadership. That is, the pastor is not supposed to be just out having being himself served. That he is to be serving. So that's the, one of the pictures we actually have with our deacons, right? 
God has ordained male leadership in the role of the pastor. God has ordained qualified and spiritual leadership. So there's supposed to be certain qualifications that pastors have to, to lead. Exemplary leadership, that's what Hebrews was just talking about. God has ordained shared leadership. Financially supported leadership. First Timothy talks about that. We should be willing to support our, our pastoral leadership. First Thessalonians 5 talks about respected leadership. And then James 3 and Hebrews 13 talks about accountable leadership. That they are actually should be held accountable, but not above uh, reproach. That we actually should, or excuse me, not, um, we should not hold them in a position where they, uh, we, you know, uh, they are not held accountable for their actions. So, any questions on any of that? It was a lot of material. We actually didn't even make it through the lesson. We came close. But, uh, any questions on anything we covered? You guys drank from the fire hose tonight, so it's a good job. So, let me close this in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for the study of the local church. We thank you for your love and grace and wisdom in bringing us here. We pray that this study would help us to serve you better here in the community, that we would uh, use the lesson to give us a desire to serve, uh, to submit to each other, to love one another as part of the family. But all of the foundation of all of that would be our love for you. We pray that we would seek opportunities to serve one another, to uh, share uh, our lives with each other, to invest our lives into each other. For your uh, glory, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name.